in a world where everything is rebooted and regurgitated, one man stands alone. Dylan Wade. Popcorn Politics. It is February 25th, and we are going to be talking a bit about the coronavirus today. Um, it's been in the news a lot, and we're going to try to cut through it because there's a lot of unnecessary fear mongering. Um, um, uh, there you are. So, uh, oh. So, can we uh go to can, can, yeah Chuck, Chuck can we go break? Hey, can you guys hear me? Uh, Chuck, can we go to break? Yeah, that can be done. Hold on. In a world where everything is rebooted and regurgitated, one man stands alone. Dylan Wade. WallStreetWindow.com Gold, silver, the stock market. WallStreetWindow.com Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. WallStreetWindow.com Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State understood these trends professionally for many years and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge wallstreetwindow.com go there now go there now go there now
nuclear holocaust. You know what uranium is, right? This thing called nuclear weapons and other things, like lots of... You know what uranium is, right? Bad things. Things are done with uranium, including some bad things. Nuclear holocaust. You know what uranium is, right? I've been briefed. Nuclear holocaust. Nuclear holocaust. You know what uranium is, right? This thing called nuclear weapons and other things, like lots of... Humans, their nature demands competition. The rising tide of aggression shaping the world around us. Natural fear and disgust can overcome the ability to reason. Coping skills are left wanting. Carmine Savastano, Human Time Bomb, The Violence Within Our Nature, poses significant questions and considers the evidence that violence shapes the past and present. Human Time Bomb, The Violence Within Our Nature, Order your digital and print copies now on Amazon.com. For more information, visit tpaak.com. Carmine Savastano, Human Time Bomb. Go ahead, caller. Yeah, I'm interested in the truth about the JFK assassination. Right, well, what do you want to know? Judy Baker's wild claim, Oswald girlfriend, he knew Ruby and Barry, cancer weapons. Really? I imagine I could claim I have four wheels. It doesn't make me a wagon, but okay. Oswald was on the kill team and trying to prevent the murder of John Kennedy. Come on now, has a real effort on the JFK assassination book into her claims? Go to Amazon.com, enter Judith Baker in her own words. You'll get results for a digital copy of a book where Walt Brown utilizes her own words and the known evidence in the case to get at, well, <laughs> a different perspective, let's say. You can get Judith Barry Baker in her own words from the author himself, signed, if you request it, by contacting Dr. Brown at K-I-A-S-J-F-K at AOL.com. It's a fun book, and it actually dissects the many, many fantastic claims. Judith Barry Baker in her own words. Thank you for all the great information. Now back to Dylan Wade. All right, take two, everybody. Uh, live radio. Um, so uh, we have Joe, uh, Joe Sandberg with me. Um, Joe is the co-founder of Aspiration uh, Bank. He's uh, it's a online financial institution for value-driven consumers. Uh, Joe, thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Dylan. Yeah, no problem. Happy to. Um, so as I mentioned right at the top, I want to talk about the coronavirus briefly. Um, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of, frankly, fear mongering about it. Um, yes. People are, uh, in my opinion, at least unnecessarily scared of it. Um, there, the market's going down. Um, Trump's given a irrational response but not as bad as i thought it would be um any thoughts on it in general the market going down and the and the uh hysteria well i think you described it exactly right it's hysteria but obviously anyone who's affected by it and, and heaven forbid anyone who uh dies or is experiencing a family member who dies of it is one person too many that said um I have confidence in our institutions. I think there's a lot about our institutions that um, remains non-political and highly effective. And, you know, I um, I think in the long run, everything will work out fine um, and the, the impact will be short-term in nature. 
I, I agree. Um, I, I liken it a lot to every couple of years we had the, uh, I remember back in 2014, we had, uh, the Ebola outbreak and yes. I remember the panic and the Zika outbreak. Um, it's, it seems like every few years we, uh, we have to get some news about a new pandemic and it, it's, obviously a shame that it's gotten this far and broken out this much but i i I do also have faith that this isn't anything significant Uh, yes i think that's right now also you know i find that the things in life that one needs to most worry about are, are are the things that come out of left field and generally the things where everyone gets worked up into a frenzy rarely end up living up to the hype, partly because that frenzy sparks a lot of preparatory action. Yes. And I mean, that's just how we are. We, we get scared over things we don't, we can't control. We get scared over things we don't need to be afraid of. It's just in our nature. Um, so I don't have much more to say on it other than, uh, I, I'm surprised that the uh the response from trump wasn't more panicked um it certainly hasn't been good so far but um i I was expecting much more a a much more erratic response um Mm. any sort of opinions on that before we move forward well i share your i share your reaction i don't have any Anything insightful to add? Um, I'm, I'm definitely not clinically trained to know uh, into the psyche of the presidents. <laughs> no, I don't think any of us are. <laughs> um, so I I want to cover uh, Bernie Sanders today. Um, yes. Uh, so this is only the third episode, but the way I like to do things is I, I want to cover an election. But we don't have an election right now. So I figured the next best thing is a candidate profile. Um, yes. And we should probably start with the apparent front runner. Um, yes. Bernie has all the momentum behind him. He's won two out of the first three states and arguably won Iowa, um, despite some, uh, despite some massive irregularities. Um, yes. And and the media, along with the Democratic establishment, is in a full panic, which I think is a good indication of his chances. Yes. Um, I know you're a prominent support, uh, supporter. Uh, do you have any thoughts on his momentum lately, what it means, et cetera? Well, I think um, I think Bernie's going to be the Democratic nominee and I think he's going to win the presidency, foremost because I think the – most prominent political cleavage in politics right now in America is, is outside inside as opposed to left versus right. And I think what the mainstream punditry is, is misassessing is exactly that. They're thinking that this is about the left versus the right as opposed to establishment versus anti-establishment. In 2016, voters were presented with an anti-establishment and an establishment choice. They chose anti-establishment. I think when voters are presented with a progressive anti-establishment choice versus a conservative anti-establishment choice, they're going to go with the progressive anti-establishment choice because over the last 20 years, the country has become more left of center. That's affirmed in all kinds of surveying and behavioral data. Um, but if you present people with an establishment versus anti-establishment choice, then um, 
they're going to pick anti-establishment most times. And I think that's what happened in 2016. Second of all, I think that, um, there's an incredibly inspiring dynamic that is, is as much about Bernie as it is his supporters and his coalition. When we think as progressives around how we're going to truly create change over the next 30 years, actually govern progressively and implement policies that are going to work and are, and then are going to outlast all of us. We need a big coalition, not just of people in government, but of, of voters who are inspired to civic action. And I think, I hope eventually the democratic establishment will come around to Bernie's coalition because it represents a supermajority of progressives under 45. And those progressives under 45 will be the foundation of what's going to create progressive governance over the rest of our lifetimes. I think that's also the coalition that, you know, is going to drive him to the nomination. I finally think that, um, even if he doesn't reach a majority of delegates before the convention, he's going to um, end up in the 40% plus range because as we move into states like California, um, where there's this 15% viability threshold, if you don't reach 15% in a congressional district as a candidate, you get no delegates. Um, if Bernie wins 35% or so in California, he could end up winning 75, 80% of the delegates. And so I think as the momentum builds behind that, um, I think that some of these um, sirens that we're going to have a brokered convention are going to taper. And uh, my my gut instinct is that by mid-April, it will be clear that he's going to be the nominee and, and people who have been skeptical of concern will start to be excited. Yeah. Um, overall, I think your assessment is spot on. Um, the The – the coalition that he's building is actually incredibly different from his 2016 coalition. Yes. yes. And that surprised me even. Um, I support, I, I couldn't vote in 2016, but I supported him and I was surprised at how different the coalition had become. Uh, it, it's much more diverse and more centered around younger voters, not older conservative working class voters. Um, I think that enables him to outperform polling and I think in states like Nevada, he's he was actually perfectly positioned. That state is his coalition. Yes, um, so California. Yes, same with California. Um, but where I don't think I necessarily agree is I don't think that I, – I think it's optimistic to think that even if he gets into the 40 percent range that – the democratic establishment is going to give in. I, I I don't see it. I mean, they, the only reason Michael Bloomberg is in the race is because the democratic establishment said anyone but anyone but Bernie. Well, I understand your perspective. I think there's logic to it. I also think that political professionals love to win. Yes. And – Nothing projects winning than winning. <laughs> and um, as Bernie racks up victories and as more polls come out showing that he's the most equipped to defeat Donald Trump, I think that um, a lot of the establishment is going to come around him. Not to create um, equivalents in any way, shape or form, but there is um, some sense of insight about what happened in 2016 with the Republican establishment. It's, it is fair to say that that Donald Trump was the anti-establishment candidate in their party. 
Bernie is the anti-establishment candidate in our party. That's about where the similarities end as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Though you, you, but you can look at how the establishment of the Republican Party responded, you know, when it became apparent Trump was going to be the nominee for better or for worse. Everyone that called for there's going to be this, all this stuff stopped Trump at the convention and all the rest and ultimately nothing. And that is, that is true. And to your point, there was a, uh, there was an article released, I believe it was yesterday, where a bunch of senators, Kristen Gillibrand, uh, Chris Van Hollen, and uh, Chris Murphy were all quoted as being enthusiastic about his candidacy, which actually surprised me. Um, the, uh, Kristen Gillibrand didn't, but um, Van Hollen and Murphy are generally seen as more establishment senators. So that does lend some credibility to, uh, yeah, to your point. Well, and anyone who is an anti, let me, let me restate that. Anyone who's never Bernie, please check your class privilege and, and white privilege at the door. My God, to say that you would vote for Donald Trump over Bernie Sanders is, is so offensive and, and lacking in any fraction of self-awareness. We can have differences of opinion about Bernie's public policy approaches, and I think re- reasonable people can disagree. But to draw some equivalence between any of his positions and you know the devastation that President Trump's positions are causing for tens of millions of people who live in fear, it is so morally offensive. I have no tolerance for people who are in the never Bernie camp. Fight hard for your candidate. I think there's lots of great Democrats running. I I think super highly of Elizabeth Warren. As I think a lot I. of the, you know she would be a phenomenal president. Um, and then when we have a nominee, we need to all be behind the nominee. I'm going to support the Democratic nominee, whoever it is. I hope it's Bernie, but any other candidate including Bloomberg and, and Buttigieg and Klobuchar, all of them will be light years better than Donald Trump. Yeah, I think it – if you're on the left and you're in the Never Bernie camp, it's more ideologically inconsistent. I, I don't understand it. Like I, I understand for people who are more in the center and to the right, I I don't agree with them, but I understand their position. It, it makes sense, but to do it from the left – it takes a level of ideological inconsistency that I don't I don't quite understand. It, it also speaks to the fact then that politics is a game for you instead of real life. Because if you think that Donald Trump, if you're if you're on the left and you think Donald Trump would be better for low income Americans, for people of color, for immigrants who are living on the margins of society, if you think Donald Trump would be better for those people, then Please don't say that you're on the left or progressive because that's disingenuous. Yeah, it, it it is. It's disingenuous. And I yeah, I don't mind people who I, – I wasn't supporting Bernie for most of the primary. I still don't know who I'm going to support. But I mean Bernie, Warren, they'd all – I don't know if I agree on Bloomberg, but they'd all be, they'd all be better uh, to a degree. Yes. Yes. And, yeah. And, and this, and this yeah. is why we have primaries. I've never understood all the hand-wringing that seems to happen every time over competitive primaries. Primaries are supposed to be competitive. And here's the interesting historic framework. When Democrats have won, it's been when we've nominated someone out of competitive primaries. 
Yeah, competitive primaries just they're better for for everyone. Primaries are where you have choice. I mean, it's, I don't blame anybody who gets to a general election and says I don't like either of my options. But if you didn't vote in the primary, I mean, that's where your choice is. Yeah, un- unless there was a uh, unless there was a coronation, which there almost was in 2016. Yes. And then you look at 08 and everyone said, oh, it's so bad competitive primary. Well, Barack Obama won the presidency and then go back to 1992. That was an incredibly competitive and fractured primary. Bill Clinton won the presidency. 76, super competitive primary. Jimmy Carter comes out of nowhere, wins the presidency. Then by contrast, look at the times where we have had much less competitive primaries. 84, Mondale gets obliterated in the general election, you know. Gore, 2000, not good at the general election, so on. Yeah, no, I mean, there are definitely, uh, there, there are a lot of benefits to a stronger, uh, to a competitive primary. And even if you think that it produces a weaker candidate, on the, on the merits, don't, shouldn't people have the choice? I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense to say, oh, we should, Pick, we should just have the candidate picked for us. Well, then you really don't want a choice. I, I, then you're lending some credibility to the theories that everything is done in a smoke-filled back room. I mean, no, you can't just have the candidate picked for you. And that's what's interesting about uh, this seeming outsider victory by Bernie. Um, it It speaks to... Um, the dissatisfaction that people have with the political and the media establishment, just like Trump's victory did. Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, and I, I thought after 2016, perhaps naively, that the Democratic establishment at least would learn the lesson and they would realize, OK, we need to reevaluate our strategy going forward. But they largely haven't. With with respect, yes, that was naive to think that. Yes, <laughs> fair. That is very fair because, as I've seen lately, they don't they don't learn. Yes, well, it's they, human nature. No, I mean caucuses have remained, even though they've proven over and over to be an unmitigated disaster. Yes, <laughs> uh, yes. They continued with a uh, with a half baked. Um, sort of rushed impeachment, which had merit and was probably legitimate, but done in such a quick fashion that nothing came of it. And let's return to the original premise, too, which is Bernie Sanders' viewpoints are pretty in line with FDR. And, you know, the Democratic Socialism moniker, I think, sometimes is just a red herring. Personally, I, I am a capitalist. I consider myself a progressive capitalist. And um, all of Bernie's views are in line with what I perceive as progressive capitalism. So I think if people studied American history and understood the pillars of FDR's presidency, they would see that all of them are pretty in um, tune with Bernie's policies. And my personal wish is I wish that um, we would describe this as social democracy um, because I think that that would better explain it. Um, But – yeah, you know, it um, is what it is. Yeah, it, 
honestly, I think Bernie's almost a little confused by by the term. Um, and I I understand. I mean, he's not a democratic socialist. His positions are, as you described, more in line with social democracy. Yes, that's right. Uh, but regardless, um, I, I do want to get to uh, the his positions because I, I have some uh, questions on the merits of them. I, I agree with most of them, but I want to see how they hold up to some of the common counter arguments that I have not heard in the media. Okay. Um, so his Medicare for all plan is fairly popular. Um, it, it, it depends on the polling because the question can be varied so much and the level of support changes given the context. But the, the argument that the most persuasive argument against it that's never used in the media is even in the countries that have something like what Bernie is advocating, there is a place for a private insurance model. Um, and I, I, I agree with Bernie's position, but I do think that is something that he or someone needs to answer for. Well, too. this is where I think I have a, a perspective contribution to add as a progressive business person. Sure. In, in business, you negotiate from a place of strength. I, and I agree, yeah. as Democrats, I've observed us become so expert at negotiating from a place of compromise. So yeah. I admire what Bernie's doing as negotiating from a place of strength and to acknowledge that we'll probably have to make some compromise. Is not to be wobbly on Medicare for all? No. To the opposite, it's to say by building political coalition around Medicare for all, we're going to have the strongest negotiating position to get the very, very best possible outcome. That's the way to me it seems obvious that you should be pursuing change. Ask for more than what you'd settle for. Um, and the conservative movement has been expert at this in America. Think about it. In our lifetimes, they've asked for no taxes. That's their position. No taxes. Their position is no regulation on guns. I think guns are another area where we're so bad at negotiating from a position of compromise. The conservative position is no restrictions on guns. The progressive position is reasonable gun control. I'm yeah. really um, – high conviction here. I think we should be arguing from a position of banning gun ownership. And then because banning gun ownership, yeah. banning, banning gun ownership is the negotiating equivalent of the conservative position of no limits on gun ownership whatsoever. And of yeah. course, would we, would, would we settle for something less than banning gun ownership? Obviously, but that's where we should be negotiating from. Yeah. it. I have noticed uh, – even during the just the Trump presidency, I've I've noticed it over and over again. This desire to start from the middle. I mean, I I don't mind compromise at all. I think it makes sense. Um, but it it goes to the point that there are a lot of people on the left that I don't think are actually interested in moving anything forward, and that's why they start from the middle because. They're, they don't want to move forward. Um, that just so upsets me because as a person who myself grew up in a household that was confronted with a ton of financial turmoil, 
you know, we lost our home to foreclosure when I was a teenager. These are real life issues. This isn't a game. And nothing makes me angrier about observing politics than when people gamify it. This is real life. It's not house of cards. Right. Uh, the only, uh, <laughs> the only counter argument to your gun ownership point though is the South would probably just shut down the negotiation at that point. I, I think you would probably have to move it a little bit to the right. Maybe do something like what um, – I I didn't agree with his stance, but I think Beto O'Rourke actually did move the, the goalpost in a positive way on, on gun reform. I agree. I, I admire him on that issue. Yeah, I, I think if he had kept that energy through his entire campaign, he'd probably still be in the race. It's true. Uh, he he found it. He he found his stride too late. But uh, yeah. on um, back to Bernie because I do want to move through a couple of his other positions. Um, okay. And how I, much time I, do you want to, by the way, do for? Um, we have about thirty. Uh, we have about thirty minutes left um, okay. in this hour. Um, so, so I want to talk about the Green New Deal because that's, yes. I think, his other big proposal. Um, so the Green New Deal is, in my eyes at least, uh, kind of a nebulous term. Mm. And the framework of the bill hasn't really – it's more of a – it's more of a manifesto, if you will of what priorities the uh, the left has rather than an environmental plan. It, is that a fair characterization? No, I don't agree with it. I think it's a pretty comprehensive industrial plan for a green economy. So just um, flesh it out for both me and for the audience. If you, if you, if you have any, uh, like deep inside audit. If you don't, we can we can move forward. I I, well, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't have ambushed you with these. No, it's not. I don't I don't experience it as an ambush whatsoever. I think it's a critical area that people need to understand with more detail because I think Green New Deal means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Let me express how I interpret it in the way that builds the broadest coalition. First of all, we should have an industrial policy that uses the coordinating power of government to align economic incentives towards national goals. To be clear, that doesn't mean government ownership of industry. It means utilizing one of government's most powerful tools, which is the power to convene and coordinate through economic incentives. And one of the things we've lacked as a nation for the last 30 or 40 years is a coherent industrial policy. What is it that we want to be economically motivating the private sector to do and build. And so the starting premise of the Green New Deal is we should be developing fiscal policy around the objective of economically motivating the private sector to build a post-carbon economy. Then within that, there are all sorts of pillars of how you implement those economic incentives. For example, one of my favorites is this notion of a green earned income tax credit, where if you earn money from businesses that are carbon neutral or that are making certain strides and reducing their carbon footprint, that you can get extra um, EITC as workers. I think one of the crucial things we've learned over the last 30 or 40 years is that you need to 
stimulate the demand side, both as consumers and as employees, rather than just the supply side of um, employers. So imagine if we could harness workers to be seeking out employers who are running green businesses. Um, there's also the, the question of all of the construction jobs that you're going to need to deploy to retrofit homes and energy systems around the country. And for everyone, I think there's a different um, policy articulation. And I, I think sometimes that the Green New Deal is criticized as well as it is a catch-all. But that's not a criticism because policy begins with philosophy. And the most important point here is that as a philosophy, the Green New Deal means that our national industrial policy ought to be geared towards creating economic motives to create a post-carbon economy. And within that objective, you can take any number of fiscal policies and rearticulate them to motivate private sector actors towards the green, if you will. Right. And, and I agree with the long-term goal of it and the philosophy of it. And I think it's probably the most critical issue. And I, I think it should probably take priority in the next administration, though I know that's probably not going to happen. Um, it'll probably be second or third on the list, which I, it makes sense. Um, but – and I agree that policy does start with philosophy and that I, it is a bit of a catch-all right now, but it is in the early stages. That That is fair, and there are a lot of different ways to push the plan forward. Um, yes. So – the final one of his uh, the final policy that I sort of want to get into, and then I would like to um, sort of broaden the conversation to um, Bernie in a hypothetical general election and the political feasibility of the plans because mm. i I think that does need to be talked about um, but the other policy that I want to get into is his plan for unions um I know he's talked – he and Elizabeth Warren have both talked a lot about uh, sectoral bargaining and uh, uh, employees on corporate boards. And as somebody who co-founded and runs a business, I just wanted to get your perspective on it. Does it make sense? Is it good policy? And if it is or isn't, why? Well, I think co-determination is great policy. One of the weaknesses of corporate America is that we don't fully incorporate, no pun intended, the, the insights of workers, not only for their own stakeholdership of the business, but also for the insights they bring. Any businesses, workers are on the front lines of serving that business as customers. And one of the weaknesses of corporate America is that we don't do enough to incorporate the feedback from people who are on the front lines of serving customers. So how... How does uh, how do it, I know co-determination has been used in other countries? Um, so does co-determination, in your mind at least, create a better work environment, or is it just to benefit uh, the insights of the company? I, I think it probably does a little bit of both, but of course it does a lot of both, and that's also why. It's the right business strategy. It's it's one of those questions that's do well, do good. If your workers feel more ownership over 
work culture and work product, they're going to do a better job. Right. That Yes, that does make sense. Um, so going forward to uh, let's assume for a moment that Bernie comes through the convention and he is the nominee. Yes. Um, how how do you imagine a general election between Sanders and Trump would turn out? Um, just broadly and specifically the result, but also broadly the campaign itself. What I expect is that Bernie will campaign against Trump where Trump's the weakest, which is he's not a true populist. He, he sold the electorate on fake populism. So how, um, I, I tend to agree that would be the most effective strategy, yes. That's what I expect we'll see. I think uh, that um, we'll see him talking about the reality that Donald Trump campaigned on being a friend of the working person and, and to the opposite. Donald Trump's been an enemy of the working person and, you know, the best, best paramour of, uh, of the rich. Okay. So, yeah, I, I tend to agree that's probably the best position to take. Um, I personally, I don't think a campaign of, Trump's a bad guy is going to work anymore. No, people yeah. already decided he's a bad guy and they voted for him anyways. This is, again, the Democratic establishment misunderstanding what Come people up. voted for and what they knew. They knew that let me let me say that voters vote for candidates based on what candidates are going to do for them. And political pundits way overestimate how much voters care about who a candidate is. It's about yeah. what a candidate is going to do for the voter. And yes. people thought that Donald Trump was going to you know, be an anti-establishment president that would look out for people that had been left behind. And he's not. And that's his major weakness. I, I agree. Um, but I've, I've brought this up a couple of times on my past podcast, but I wanted to get your take on it as well. Um, I think that the... Democratic establishment over the last four years has done something impressive. They've managed to, in a lot of ways, make the incumbent president still appear as the anti-establishment candidate. Um, do, do you think that's an accurate assessment? Yes, or? That's exactly – that's the best criticism that I've heard of the Democratic establishment for the last four years, and it's because they continue to not understand the 2016 election. The entire, entire opposition and resistance, in my view, should have been about how Donald Trump has not been an ally of working people. He ran as if he was going to be, and he has not been. Yes, uh, I tend to agree. He, it, that's how they should run, and it's unquestionable that he's sort of he's worked for the corporations as long as he's been there. He's he ran as a populist, but he governed as a traditional conservative largely um with slightly more over uh bigotry um but is the uh i i think i know your answer and i think i know my answer but i want to get your take is the country ready for a uh for a jewish president um we have to ask the question with women candidates so i figure it's fair to ask it here too there, the, well i think um sorry I, I just wanted to add that the trump 
uprising was a lot was hinged a lot on backlash to uh, racist backlash to Obama. So I just wanted to get your take. Uh, unless we lost you. Um, hold on. I think we might have lost Joe. Um, have we? Right. Perhaps we did. Let's see if we can uh, pull him back on. Sorry for opening up the mic, but... <laughs> it, it's okay. This e- is one of those moments I needed it. <laughs> easier to communicate, I think. Uh, let's see now. I'm still showing him in the uh, conversation. Uh, As am I. Y- you might have to reload your question, unfortunately, uh, because... I, I think, uh, well, you know, disclosure here, I, I sort of uh, brought it up in the text chat to you. Uh, and I think it's an interesting question because, you know, we, we, we have to take a look at all these candidates across the board. Uh, you know, it, is the country ready for a woman president is asked all the time, like you said. And in addition, uh, you know, quite frankly, I, I feel as though, you know, Buttigieg is more of a spoiler. And again, if you remove the fact that he's gay from the equation, he's a Boy Scout, you know, basically to the American electorate. But is the country ready for an openly gay president? That's a fair question. If you're examining Buttigieg, Buttigieg, excuse me. Uh, and I, I think it's a fair question with Sanders because there is no doubt still a root at the very least, of anti-Semitism in the country one way or another. Uh, you know, and you could characterize that as part of Trump's base as well or not, up to you. But the way I see it is uh, that this sort of prejudicial uh, kind of thinking uh, still needs to be recognized that it exists. It's not necessarily the prevalent um, flavor, let's say, among the voting populace, but it's something that needs to be looked at. Uh, and, and meanwhile, p- perhaps Joe is muted I don't know because we cannot hear him. But um, how about if you just give your take on uh, what, what you think about, you know, the, the country being ready? And again, you, you can't just think of it as the north and where it is you live, because uh, over and over again, we can see that there are disparities region by region in this country for what might be acceptable and what still might not be, regardless of the reasoning. Uh, right. You know, so and, and um, by the way, the divisive issues of race and religion are, are, are all over these politics anyway. What have we been listening to uh, from the pundits now for the whole week? Well, Biden and support among the black community. Uh, and, and, you know, how is that based? And it is, uh, is it all based on Obama and name checking him? And meanwhile, all the candidates are tripping over themselves to show their connection to Obama. And I keep wondering how that plays in areas where perhaps, uh, there is still a lot of racism under the skin, if you will, uh, uh of, of the population. Go, go ahead, Dylan. I mean, you know, I say run with it and we'll see if we can get Joe back while we're doing that. Um, Joe, you should be back. Um, your mic is muted, but you should, um, I re-added you. Can you hear us? Um, your mic is muted if you're talking. Hmm. Sorry. Sorry. I saw him get re-added and I thought he was here. He's gone again. Um, but no, I, I, I tend to agree. Um, that, Sorry. Um, no, I, I tend to agree that there is probably a strategic uh, downside to Biden 
um, allying himself so closely with Obama. But at the same time, I don't think that it's as bad as um, you might think because in the areas where this backlash tends to exist, they also aren't generally Democratic strongholds. They aren't areas that uh, are going to be uh, contested generally. I mean, you have the odd case like uh, in rural areas of the Midwest, but otherwise you don't really – you don't see a lot of the uh, racist undertones in the swing states so much as you see them in the solid red states. But I do think they're – Probably is some under under uh, undercurrent of racism even in those areas. Right. Well, the thing is, though, again, you have to consider the country as a whole. Right. Uh, this may not be an issue in the Democratic primary, but it yeah. does seem to me to be a significant issue when you take the nation as a whole, because you must accept that there are areas and there is a portion of the population that has this prejudicial sort of thinking. Um, so, you know, you, you can't ignore it. I'm not saying we should embrace it or be happy about it, uh, but uh, but I would say that it can't be ignored either. I mean, what do you think of that? No, it certainly can't be ignored. Um, but what I would also say is um, you, you shouldn't cower away from a candidate because of – uh, those for those reasons, um, I think that uh, the I, I I think that it makes more sense to try to change the argument than to sort of run from it. But uh, Joe, you're back in. Uh, can you can you hear me? Uh. It says you're back. Um, it does, indeed. Um, I don't know. You know, chicanery with Skype, what can we do? Because we're, we're going to wind up running out of time, <laughs> yes. you know, for this hour, because you, you've got about 10 minutes left at most uh, at this minute. So um, you may just have to carry that yourself if we can't get Joe back in for the last word, basically. Uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, these are the perils of live radio, my friends. So, um Anyway, right. you know, it, it is what it is. I, I, I think that, yeah, no, look, obviously, uh, you and I discussing this and anybody who's looking at, you know, trying to seek a different solution for the uh, difficulties that we're having currently with the person in office is not going to reject a candidate based on any of this nonsense yeah. uh, and, and is not going to uh, uh, fail to uh, embrace a candidate out of fear either. But once you get to the general selection process, um, it, it's going to be a factor. I mean, I really feel as Absolutely. though there was certainly a backlash to Hillary, not just because of her robotic reactions in 2016, but she just wasn't a likable candidate. She didn't have the personality. And then there were also people that regardless of how, you know, we have progressed, et cetera, which, by the way, many, many nations have had female leaders before we have uh, at the top of the uh, pyramid, so to speak. But fact is, I believe that some of the non, you know, committed to Hillary or even willing to vote for her people 
on some level did it because who wants a woman to run things? Uh, you know, and I'm not saying that that's my view. I'm saying that there is still a good enough portion of the population for it to be a factor. That's all I'm right, saying. And Joe is back, thankfully, so I don't have to keep Yay. covering. Oh. Uh, but go ahead, <laughs> Dylan. <laughs> uh, so I don't know how uh, how much you heard before you got disconnected, um, but the last sort of question I proposed was uh, whether uh, we have to ask the question with uh, women candidates, and it's been asked for Pete Buttigieg, so I figured it it's only fair to ask it here too. Is the country ready for a Jewish president? Absolutely, view? absolutely. Because voters vote for what the candidate is going to do for voters more than who the candidate is. And this is one of the big misperceptions of national politics and, and local politics um, and everything in between. Is most people decide based on what you're going to do for them. Uh, I I tend to agree, though I do think there was a backlash against both Obama and Hillary Clinton um, due to those factors. Um, well, I, and here, here's the thing. Let me help you out, too, Dylan, just for time's sake here. Uh, you know, Joseph, I entered into the conversation that uh, there you, you have to recognize that in the general electorate, there is still this concept of it doesn't matter. They take the candidate off the table. That's still a truth in some parts of the country. Now, people who just want the best person to do the job um, or to just serve them, they're going to go with a certain sentimentality. But there is still a fair enough amount of the population in many places, I think, that are going to reject a candidate based on, you know, some very antiquated and ridiculous kind of prejudices. And uh, that's why we talked about Hillary and maybe some people still didn't want a woman. And there was definitely a backlash against Obama, a resentment kind of. Um, not saying that I agree with any of that, just saying that uh, don't you think that that's something to have to contend with in the general elections? I think those voters would never vote for a Democrat anyways. And I think that as Democrats, our nominee rises or falls based on how effectively we turn out progressive voters and, and non-voters the largest segment of the population um, is people who don't vote. And there's plenty of people in that segment that would vote for a woman, a person of color, a Jew, a Muslim, a gay yeah. person, any member of the LGBTQIA community, name it. Um, anyone can win the presidency as the Democratic nominee if we turn out people who don't typically vote by giving them something to vote for. Yes, um, and just... Uh... To add on to that, I actually think that's the most room that has the most room for growth. Um, one of those demographics that doesn't turn out is mine and uh, 18 to 34 year olds. And I've been surprised to find out that, uh, of course, it's anecdotal, but I've done a couple of surveys for classes and I've found uh, over 90 percent of the people I've surveyed have said they're going to vote this year. So I think that unlikely voters turning out is probably the best path to victory versus people in areas that I don't think probably would support uh, the Democratic candidate. Though, yes. I, though I do think there probably were some um, – there is probably a percentage of Cl uh, Bill Clinton 
supporters who maybe became more right-wing over time and ended up not supporting Obama. Though I do agree that the vast majority of the candidate, the voters who decide based on race probably wouldn't support a Democrat anyway. Yes, that's right. Um, so with our last couple of minutes, um, I, I want to give you the last word, promote anything you have. Um, thank you for coming on. Yeah, the number one thing I want to promote is the fact that the choices we make every single day matter. And we need to think about every opportunity we have to create positive change. We vote every couple of years, sometimes more often, and it's critical that we vote whenever we can. But creating change can't be limited to voting, and it can't be limited to politics. It has to include how we spend our money, how we treat others, how we spend our time. And I think that as a progressive movement, we have a ton of opportunity to do a lot more there. Uh, I agree. Uh, A larger movement needs to be built. Um, any uh, outside of politics as well. Um, are there any places that our listeners can uh, follow you and uh, keep in uh, just keep informed? I think we lost Joe again. Um, if we if we lost him, which I think we just did. Um, I know that you can uh, follow him at at Joseph Sandberg uh, at Joseph N Sandberg on Twitter, um, but uh, otherwise, uh, I'm not sure. Hopefully, we can get him last in for uh, back in for the last second to give anything else he wants to promote. Um, uh, yes, yeah, you're back. Um, I think uh, you're you're in and out. Um, I I I gave out your Twitter um, just for anyone who wants to follow. Um, Dylan. Yes. Hello. Dylan. Yes. Thank you. One of these days we're going to have to innovate in the in the telecom industry because uh, <laughs> cell phone connections aren't what they ought to be. Please. Um, do you, uh, just with our last couple of seconds, um, any social media that people can reach you on? Twitter, Joseph N. Sandberg. My direct messages are open, so please write me, and um, you know, I try and I try and respond to everything thoughtful. Great. Uh, thank you. That's actually how we connected. Um, yes. So that is hour one. Um, we will be back with Carmine Savastano to talk about The Godfather in a few minutes. In a world where everything is rebooted and regurgitated, one man stands alone. Ocelli.com
is the voice of America broadcasting worldwide. The age of transitions. Morning, morning, morning. Uncle, the podcast. The Ocelli effect. It's the Aphrodite. Orkin's Policy Radio with Pierce Redman. Ocelli.com. In a world where everything is rebooted and regurgitated, one man stands alone. Dylan Wade. We are all certainly popcorn. Now back to Dylan Wade. <laughs> I guess we are all popcorn. Um, so, second hour. Uh, hopefully with less technical difficulties. Um, so, my guest today is uh, Carmine Salvestano, and we are going to talk about The Godfather. Carmine, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. How are you doing? I- I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. Yeah, I was actually surprised. This isn't something I normally talk about much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have been promising this discussion for, what, years? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I remember when we first talked about it years ago, yeah. I had told you that it's a movie worth watching, even though it is long by today's standards. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it is. So so I want to get into my general impressions of it first, and then I'll open it up to you to go into your general thoughts or into specific points. Um, so I certainly like this movie quite a bit. Um, it artistically speaking, it's breathtaking. Uh, the performances are all fantastic. The, the, the direction of it is breathtaking and just the performances are stunning. Um, but overall, I don't, the movie doesn't live up to what it has been promised it, to me at least um and it's not fair to the movie it was it was told to me as if it was this unrivaled greatest film of all time and it's certainly great but it's not quite at that great at that level of greatness in my mind um and that's not fair that that's a negative to me but it's just how it ended up. It, it's a product of when I watched it. Um, so your general thoughts or into more specific stuff. Well, I don't know if I would call it the greatest of all time, but I certainly think it's one of the greatest of all time. If it isn't the greatest, you know, you can argue about there's going to be preferences from person to person. Sure. And then certain movies are just going to speak to people because it might be about someone like, for instance, the movie probably spoke to me more because I was raised by Italian immigrants. So they actually firsthand told me stories of interactions with criminals. <laughs> so <laughs> the the theme's a lot more meaningful to me because I saw people who were in, you know, they of course weren't, you know, like the Corleone family or any high-ranking criminals, but 
just the the culture of it and and the the transition over to America and how it changed. I kind of got to learn more about it than the average person does, just because it's my family background. So in that case, you know, you're going to find a lot more people, and it's the same way across, you know, with other movies. You know, people are going to identify more with their story. Sure, absolutely. Um, but I also don't want my sort of seemingly blah response to the movie to uh, to outweigh what I said before, though. It's a great movie, breathtaking, uh, a little long, as Carmine said, for my liking, but uh, just breathtaking. Uh, some of the best writing I've ever seen, but just not quite the... The whole did not live up to the sum of its parts, in my mind. Um, but I, I want to throw it over to you, um, just specifically. Um, talk to me about the thing that you appreciated most. Well, I think the one of the things that makes it a great movie is that, and this is something that unfortunately you don't see a lot in modern uh Cinema, and I think some things don't qualify as cinema, so the other movies as well. <laughs> but uh, but you don't see um, some of the the more expansive themes, you know, that that this movie presents. Like, you know, there is, of course, there's the story on its face, which is the story of a mafia family and its rise and fall in some ways. Uh, you know, its losses, its successes, and just as that, it's a great movie. But it's also the story of a family. And I think that's one of the themes that, you know, while we'll have stories of families now in modern cinema, it doesn't really, this is an overarching story. This actually spans generations in one film, and that's hard to do. Most of the time, people will take a small little section of a family story and tell it, not the entire, you know, Vito from his youth in Corleone all the way to Michael taking over. Right. No. Uh, spoilers. <laughs> there will be spoilers ahead if you haven't seen The Godfather, by the way. <laughs> yes. Yes. If you didn't get that impression from us spending an hour talking about the movie, well, you have now. Um, <laughs> no, it, it is impressive. Um, the ability to span generations and keep it all compelling because a story can cross generations and not grab you but this movie grabs you and it keeps your attention throughout the whole thing and it really is about the uh the fall of a good person yeah yeah michael is it's and i think the thing is is that instead of you know it's been done in other movies since of course and i'm sure it's been done in movies before but i think this is one of the most because of what you've mentioned because of the great acting because of you know the the um the impressive sets and the cinematography it takes that story and it presents it in a way that it hadn't been at that point all those elements combined and it shows you this fall, but it also, instead of turning him into a villain, which you could say he's just a villain, but I'd say he's more an anti-hero by the end than a villain. Um, you know, he has done horrible things, but he's still respected. People respect that character. They want to be like that character because he won. He's I, dominant. Well, okay, I actually don't – I don't think that makes him an anti-hero per se. Um, I – I think to be an anti-hero, 
there has to be a level of not sympathy is not the right word because you can feel sympathy for plenty of villains. Well, maybe even but, empathy, but I think people empathize with him because but, he defends his family. Yes, and I I think that's what makes an anti-hero is this inherent they don't like that they're doing bad things and they don't they it's don't just, want it, to do Well, bad it's just things. business as he says over and over. Yes. Whether that's true or not. <laughs> yeah. I, I would agree that Michael is probably the uh, at least the most prominent anti-hero. Um, yeah. But I also think, like, you could make a very compelling case that Vito is a genuine villain. Uh, well, you can make – here's the thing. With Vito, though, okay, I suppose Michael, because he's younger and because he's American in a way, is more – I think and you can empathize with him more as an anti-hero. But I think Vito might be, you know, if, if we were to to really argue it long enough, I might be convinced that Michael is a villain and Vito is an anti-hero. Okay. Um, this is why. Because Vito actually, whether you agree or not what the standards are, he does have some standards of honor that Michael violates. Which That, that is fair. And that's – it's almost the argument, too. Another theme I think a lot of people might not have latched on to is the old world versus the new. Yes. You know, that's and, a, that's yeah. a big theme, too. Yeah, and that transition from from old to new is what I gravitated to most um, because the movie is a, is a changing of the guard, essentially. Yeah. And it's a lot of the uh, – Established players. Changing of the hood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. The, esta- the established players are being tossed out. And, which which yeah. is interesting, too. That's something that didn't happen, I think, a lot in that time period. There wasn't a lot of, you know, I, I mean, there was revolutionary thought. There always is. But it wasn't happening in that sort of way in the criminal families. You know, that was sort of a – as where the government changes – People maybe maybe at the time anyway because they hadn't really fallen totally the the Italian you know most of the major families at the time so they thought of them as sort of a you know a calcified establishment that the mob would always be there and that the old men would always be in charge and that was right around when that some of them started to lose power and people started to flip yeah um, I, I I like your uh, analogy to the government. Um, I, I think it's oddly fitting in many cases. Well, they are very similar. Yes. I mean, when you look at it, let's, you know, let's, I understand there's very, I'm, I'm not doubting, you know, people's, people's patriotism or that even their own representatives are honest. But let's be honest. Let, let, let's have a look at the amount of corruption that has been ongoing in you know, but, that's that's how things like the mafia get created, is that syst- corrupt systems in the government or systems that are not functioning properly open a door for criminals to step in. Yeah. Um, and But what I really uh, sort of appreciated about the story was that it didn't need to be a story about the mob. Yeah. At yeah, all. it could have been about anything. It could have been any any generational changing. It could have been a story about miners. <laughs> and <laughs> any I family. mean, you want to you want to take it back to our earlier analogy? It could have been about 
politicians. Yes. Yeah, any number of famous families that have been in charge in America or Europe that still are in some cases. Yeah, I, there's a lot of surprising timelessness about the movie considering it uses such a frankly dated concept because I, honestly the mafia is on one hand a timeless concept but on the other hand it's also very is it fair to say it's very 90s well, uh, I, I don't even know if it's 90s. I think it's, you know, this is certainly 70s, 60s, 70s, The Godfather itself. You know, there's been movies since. I think it's it's kind of, it's one of the handful of mafia movies, and I'd say, you know, Goodfellas and a couple others, that did it right. They actually did it pretty much, they, they established kind of the canon for what the mafia became. Like The Sopranos quotes The Godfather. Yes. And, uh... Maybe it's nineties in that way, in that it's it's kind of locked in that Sopranos way of thinking, and the Sopranos kind of defined it later. Yeah, but, and and a movie like The Departed also yeah. took a lot of inspiration. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's you know, I mean, I, I I think it's great, and I think we still need to put out good movies from the period, but hopefully there'll be an updating of some of this. I mean, it's not going to be as as legendary or as impressive, it's going to be probably a lot more depressing because these days, at least, you know, from what you know from statistics and how the, you know, some of these organizations are doing, they're not any, they're a shadow of what they once were. So it's probably not going to be a very exciting movie. <laughs> no, but that's sort of, that was the point I was in artfully trying to make is that the, the concept of a mobster is very different from what it used to be, and almost the concept of a mobster is almost completely outdated. Well, it's, it's outdated for Italians. Uh, even for like Russians are, are making. Trust me, there's still a mafia. It's just a much more brutal, and they don't talk about it as much because they don't want to give a lot of attention to what they're doing. Right, but but that's sort of what I'm trying to. Uh, get at again inartfully um i that the the mafia was sort of a mythologized yeah certainly thing, and it's not anymore uh, times have sort of moved beyond it to a large degree in terms of the popular media and yet a movie like the godfather can still remain timeless yeah well i think it's kind of like you know it's <laughs> I don't want to, you know, aggrandize it too much, but it's sort of a golden age of the mafia. Sure. It's, yeah. it's, it's when the leaders still had some honor. It's when you didn't touch women and children. That you even see, and you see reflections of it that go on later. You see reflections of that in Scarface, where even he won't hurt women and children. You see reflections in, uh, you know, where we talked about... Uh, and we can, you know, do some of the scenes that we discussed on the list, but we can, you know, jump around. But one of the, one of the scenes in, uh, in, um, the second Batman, the, the, the newer Batman movies, uh, with, uh, Heath Ledger. But in that movie, when he's talking to Harvey Dent, he says, you know, I just want you to know this isn't personal. That goes back to this is business, not personal. Yes. You know, yeah. and that's, that's the common theme you see in all sorts of different kinds of movies now. Yes, and there are a couple scenes I do want to touch on. Um, obviously, the one that has stuck with me the most was the horse's head. 
Ah, the horse's head. Yeah, and you see that parodied in a lot of stuff, too. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think Family Guy even did that one. The CTV did that one. Yeah, a lot of people. <laughs> well, and that's I, I think that shows you the – that's really the the power of something like the mafia, of and it does, you know, like we've t- talked about, it doesn't have to even have to be a criminal. It could be a, you know, a secret organization, just a group of people that the law doesn't scare, a group of people that will operate beyond the bounds. And it doesn't matter if you're rich like Waltz was. They'll take the thing you love most, they'll cut its head off, and they'll put it in your bed. <laughs> yes, yes, um, but I think there is some. Uh... Some it, there's a reason why everybody's talked about it for all these years beyond just the shock value of it. There's something actually like there. It, there's a meaning there, and yeah. Yeah. it 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 cuts beneath the shock value, and that's why I appreciate it anyway. Obviously, it was genuinely shocking the first time I saw it. I I didn't know what to make of it, and I didn't understand the full meaning of it until afterwards. Yeah, well, when we talked about it. Yeah. That's the funny thing, is that this movie, as long as it was, it could be another 12 hours. Easy. Because there's so much background material and context of each of the stories. That, I mean, as much as it covers and explains, there's so much more. Like with Waltz, and it shows you, once again, it goes back to that theme. It's also, it shows you the duality of at least this mafia family. That there, it was the duality of honor and crime joined. That, okay, to survive and to make money, we're going to commit crimes. But we're going to have honor about it. There are certain crimes we will not commit. There are certain things we will not do. Uh, for instance, the movie kind of begins with that. When <clears throat> And this, I'll lead back to the horse's head. But um, So when the movie begins, it's that, you know, the Undertaker coming in, you know, as I said to you off air, I believe in America, that guy. He comes in and he tells about how, how his daughter got, uh, they tried to, two guys tried to take advantage of her, and when she wouldn't do it, they beat her. And now her, you know, her jaw's wired and she's in pain for the rest of her life. So he goes in and he asks Don Corleone to kill them. And Don Corleone says, that would not be justice. Your daughter is still alive. So if you put Don Corleone up against Michael or people from that, or people in present time who I'm sure don't even have a lick of compunction, who would probably just kill somebody if you paid them enough, he wouldn't. Because to him, it was not just. You know what? That, okay, that's fair. That, that's a valid argument. Yeah, I I hadn't thought of that scene in particular when I said that you could make an argument that Vito was more the villain. Yeah. Well, he is. I mean, he's he's a villain in that he kind of tied his whole family into it. But I also think I don't think that was his intention because he even says at the one point I wanted there to be a senator Corleone, a president Corleone. I didn't want this. I didn't want you to get involved. I knew Sonny would get involved, but I didn't want you to get involved. Yeah, but, but Sonny was just such a horrible boss. Great enforcer, horrible boss. No strategy. Wouldn't listen to Tom, the smartest guy in his crew. You know, he was going to die. <laughs> so let's talk about Sonny, because um, I I know that that was one of the things on the list, and I think he's an actually, despite his lack of, well finesse at all uh i think he's an interesting attacked yes he's an interesting character in his own right yeah well i think he is he kind of represents 
as where Michael is the cold and logical one. Sonny, and and I think even even though he is cold and logical, he is much more, as where I think Sonny can explode and has a penchant for violence, it's a violence usually that people can recover from. When yes. Michael destroys you, he destroys everything. He burns it all down. There's no chance you'll recover. To do a uh, to do another comparison, I would liken it to Ramsey Bolton versus Tywin Lannister. Sure, yeah, that's a good modern comparison. Exactly. One is just sort of mad rage, and the other is actually calculated cold destruction. Yes, um, but again, going into the full spoilers, um, on the list was uh, the death of Sonny. And I think that rivals the horse's head. That was maybe the most graphic he, uh, death representation at the time. <laughs> is it is it weird to say though, from from the perspective of somebody who watched it just three years ago, um, that didn't shock me as much as well, the horse's head. Which is funny, and and I think it's kind of society has changed in that way. Is where at that time that was such a graphic thing. Now, I mean, are you kidding me? Put a video game up against that. The video game will kill it every time. <laughs> the amount of violence that is all over everything at this point. I mean, there are shows and movies that are designed just to be a blood fest. <laughs> so it doesn't yeah. compare anymore. But what's interesting, I think, about that comparison is, but now there's a lot more people that are animal rights people and a lot more people that feel bad about animals and are more empathetic towards animals. So maybe that's why it shocks you more. Because I, now you probably wouldn't see that. You'd see someone killed. I think it's more... There was a build-up to the death of Sonny. It wasn't... At well, least, it was, yeah, you expected it a lot more. Yeah. I, I, I'll get that, yeah. definitely. I, I just I, think that society probably would respond as far as those changes. But yeah, it's it definitely is more of a left field. And like you said, to, to get to why that had to happen, beyond that Waltz... You know, he made him an offer he couldn't refuse, and Waltz refused. So... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's lucky it was just his horse. <laughs> Based on the rules that they had set up. <laughs> but uh but the reason why that ended up happening is and what's in the book, if people want to read the book, is Waltz is a pedophile. So Waltz the you, I think in the movie they kept the part where you see like the mother and the daughter leaving or whatever, you know, like as if he's interviewing actresses. He had just had a party for a girl that he was having sex with. Ooh. And then to the meeting with Tom. Ooh. So okay, he's scum. Hey. He is utter scum. Ooh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I didn't have sympathy before, but any sympathy I would have had is probably gone. Yeah. So that's why they had no, you know. But he was a powerful Hollywood director, and he wasn't giving the part to Corleone's godson. When, you know, times like the, uh, the Sicilian people take the role of Godfather very seriously. <laughs> yes, uh, they do. <laughs> yes. And the horse was a, uh, prized possession, obviously. His most favorite. Yes. His most uh, favorite possession in the And it was worth like almost a million dollars at that time, which is insanity. Uh, okay. Any horse worth a million dollars is worth too much. Yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. But regardless, moving on. <laughs> Uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's like I said about the context and the background, you know, and I'll talk real quick. We can, 
we can jump on other stuff too, but Luca Brazzi is another one that is a character that he is understood to be, you know, creepy and a bad guy in the movie, but the level of, <laughs> of deprivation that he has gotten up to in the book is much worse than the movie. <laughs> he's sort of a, you know, haha, stupid, you know, kind of a, he's scary cause he's a big guy, but other than just appearing to be a big block of meat, he doesn't really, you know, do much of substance in the movie. In the book, he's like a demon. He is, you know, Corleone only pulls him out when there's a real problem. And in the movie, he seems kind of ineffectual. But in the book, he's up until that point where he dies, he's really effective and he's feared everywhere. I kind of want to read the book now. To me, it's more interesting. And, you know, if you want want to get more into the, the meat of some of the side characters, the book is definitely the way to go. The movie's great, but uh, the book's even better because you know it's, and that's usually the case in every, in every instance. Yeah. Um, so on the line of sort of brutal killings, uh, um, Michael, uh, the shooting of uh, McCluskey. Ah, uh, <laughs> hold him, hold him up. I, I, you hoods coming around here. Gonna be honest, when I saw that on the list, I I had to scratch my head and think, who are we talking about again? And then I rewatched the scene and was like, oh, that yeah. scene. <laughs> that was one of the most, I don't know if I wasn't paying attention the first time, but it felt so abrupt. Well, yeah, that was kind of a... It, it And I think it was done in that way on purpose. I think it was just supposed to – because, you know, that was his – Michael had never killed anyone before. No, it, it – You know, that was just – he didn't know what he was doing. It was the, the – what was it? Uh, I remember that the Hyde uh, earlier when Clemenza was setting up, you know, he had to tell him over and over, drop the gun. Don't walk out too fast. Don't walk out too slow. Keep your head up, but don't look at anybody. <laughs> yeah. I, I think up until that moment, I was expecting Michael – to sort of rise above it in a way in a traditional hero story. But what sort of ended up happening was it was the, the first step and arguably the catalyst for, for Michael's transformation. Yeah, no, definitely. It was, well, and to me, I, I've always, because, you know, I, I, as I told you before, I'm half Italian, half Irish. I know those people. Like, I've had people in my family that act like some of the people in the Corleone family and some of the people that act like McCluskey. <laughs> <laughs> so I know those people. So it's – and the guy who plays him is a very good character actor. His name escapes me right now, but he's actually a good character actor that was in 1950s movies. But he played a great – you know, that was – a lot of people don't know. The reason why there are so many Irish people that are police is because for a time they were just – they would work for – lower wages as, you know, civil servants. They were big, they were stocky, and they knew how to fight. That's um, why a lot of Irish people were recruited in the earliest times into the police. The actor's name is uh, Sterling Hayden. Yeah, Sterling Hayden, yeah. Yeah, he's a good actor, good character actor. Yeah, and um, Dr. Strangelove as well. Yeah, 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 you're right. He played uh, the crazy general, and he was great yeah. as that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, gentlemen, there's no fighting in the war room. <laughs> It, uh, no, great character actor, and uh, it, it, that scene really is sort of the the impetus, I think. For it, yeah. it's the scene to me. 
Yeah, it defines the movie in a lot of ways. Um, it, it for for me at least, um, I expected, as I said, a traditional hero story where the seemingly decent guy from the corrupt family is going to work his way up and change it. And that scene sort of switched switched my brain, and I went, "Oh no, I'm watching a very different movie." Yeah, no, that's that's a that's it's a very good uh, an inspection of it. I think that you know it because ultimately it leads to the mafia war, in which Sonny dies and dozens of others get killed. It leads to um, uh, and it, it ultimately it's all an act of revenge. It's the revenge for the assassination attempt on Vito by Salazzo with its Italias. So, and, and I think that in that way, once again, we get back to the old world versus the new. You know, Salazzo represents the coming rise of drugs and crime within the criminal world, and the older mafioso like Vito are an impediment to that desired expansion. Right. And, yeah, I actually, I didn't think of it that way. <laughs> um, but it it is almost like Michael was a... As he was falling deeper and deeper, he was going up. He was, he really was falling upward, just not in the traditional sense of yeah. a failure. Yeah. Well, I think that he originally, I mean, you know, you can say that if you want to believe he's an ultimate villain, you can say that he planned it from the beginning, that he never really was that good guy. But I think he was a good man who, uh, you know, like we talked about, he, to save his family, to to destroy the enemies of his family. He would give up everything, and ultimately it made him the head of the family. But he had to give over, you know, his decency. He had to kill people. He had to kill people. He had to kill friends, and eventually worse. Yeah. Um, so on that whole, if you think of him as the ultimate villain thing, I I don't think that was the intent, and frankly, I hope it wasn't. It, I don't if, either. I think he was yeah. good up until he put himself in a position where to defend his family. And that's kind of what, as where Vito knew that was coming, Michael didn't. Michael just became that person. Yeah. Um, it, I think it's far more interesting that way yeah. than if you have a traditional villain who planned everything out and he was secretly deceiving everyone, making them think he was a good guy. That's still interesting, but it's not nearly as interesting as the fall of a good man. Yeah. Well, and he, he kind of, in a way, you know, Michael, in, in my opinion, he he's almost a sum of the dreams of Vito. And that dream turns into a nightmare, basically. Yes. Yes. And, uh... I, I think you're right, Vito knew all along what, that Michael was capable of that. Oh, yeah. Well, he was his son. Yeah. I just, he hoped it wouldn't happen. He hoped that Tom was smart enough to guide Sonny to take over. Yeah, but uh, you, you can't fix, you can't fix stupid. No, and you can't fix, you know, like I said, Sonny is, Sonny's an interesting character, and I think he's one of the most, uh, well-liked characters because he is all of the classic things. You know, he's certainly flawed, but he, he has a lot of the classic aspects of masculinity that can be useful, that, that are desirable, but they're uncontrolled. You know, he's popular, good-looking. You know, uh, women all love him. 
He he's got a good family. He's rich. He has all the advantages, but he's also impetuous. He gets angry too easy. An easy slight. He speaks up when he shouldn't. He makes his father look stupid. Yeah, he's, it, he, yeah. He's very sympathetic in a yeah. weird way. Like you're right. He is the traditional mobster that we kind of want to latch on to. Yeah, but he, there is something oddly endearing about him. Yeah, he, and, and he's, he's so fallible. violent, but it's still endearing. Yeah, he's fallible. He Yeah. He's uh, Michael's story is very human, uh, but it doesn't feel as human. He no. doesn't he doesn't if have that yeah, doesn't have that critical flaw until later on, you know, in, in the second movie. He doesn't he never has a critical flaw that could destroy him. He has lots of flaws. But Sonny is critically flawed. You know that he's not going to make it somehow. He's not going to become what he should. No, I no, I agree. Um, so, and I think speaking to that humanity, Sonny beating the guy who beat his sister. <laughs> yeah, Carlo. Hello, Carlo. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very human thing. And. Yeah. And it goes to that whole why we understand Michael's change. It, it's all about defending your family. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a that's a really good illusion between those two things. Certainly, and we see that we see it over and over. You know, we see Vito did what he did originally to protect his family. Vito continued. He didn't. The the problem where you could you know if you wanted to make the argument for Vito as a villain, which I don't. I think he's more an antihero. But if you were to make an argument as a villain, he should have stopped when he had a certain amount, but he couldn't stop, and that's. Ultimately, another lesson that the movie teaches, it's not just crime, it's any activity. If you let something overtake your life, in time, you will serve it. You won't be able to let go anymore. You'll have enmeshed yourself so deeply within it that you can't escape, and neither can your family. Yeah, um, I, I think that is the critical, uh, the critical lesson from Vito's and I agree Vito's not a villain um he I he's somewhere between anti-hero and villain he's not I I don't think he's as sympathetic as Michael no no because he's kind of alien I think because he's the old world yeah I, and but I think I also think that's how we're meant to feel yeah he, I was surprised by how much of a role he had to be honest, he was very uh, he was very much a part of the movie. And I thought oh, uh, before I watched it, I thought, oh, he's going to be in about two scenes. But no, he's a very prominent character. Yeah. Well, I think and they needed they needed him so you could really appreciate the transition. That is the problem with a lot of films is that they'll they'll have some of the background. But then it's just, you know, like you said, two, ten minutes and they're gone. So they really yeah. have no lasting, like, even after he dies, his ghost is there. Yes. So I, I do want to talk about that scene in particular, since you brought it up. Um, I want to talk about both the attempt and uh, the actual death. Okay. Yeah. Well, the attempt, I think, is <clears throat> is great as far as not only does it show you, you know, it shows you the danger that he was always in. It just yeah. becomes apparent, you know, it's there and, and it shows you how vulnerable even the head of a mafia family is that when no matter how honorable you are, no matter how 
many people you take care of because you see all the street vendors. Hey, let me give you some. You always take care of us. Thank you. Respect. It doesn't matter. It just takes one assassin, and they just need to find you at a weak moment. And they followed him enough. They knew he was with his weakest son, Fredo, who, you know, couldn't, as we saw, was sitting in the street crying while his father bled to death. That's about how useful he is. (laughs) Poor Fredo. Uh, Oh, Fredo. <laughs> Poor Fredo. <laughs> well, and you show that that I mean it, it, that that character's name has come to mean dummy for so long. <laughs> Shows you the impact <laughs> yeah. of this film. Uh, but you know, it's it, it's an important scene because it shows you that it shows you Vito's weakness and ultimately reveals that for all the power he has, it doesn't matter. Anyone can get anybody if they try hard enough. So it, it, that that also, though, you know, if you want to look at, like, you know, possible thematic elements, you can look at that. That also is that argument we're talking about between the old and the new. That was the new world trying to strike down the old to replace it. Yes. Um, but I think it is interesting how much variety there is among Vito's children. Yeah. Yeah, they do each kind of – Puzo wrote a good book in that he, he did find some pretty good representations of just classic classic archetypes of people. And you see that in families, you know, very different kids that just latch on to a certain archetype. You know, Michael is the sort of the brainy youngest. Connie is the, you know, the beloved princess of the family. Uh, Sonny is the gregarious, loud, fighting older brother. Tom's adopted in. You know, he's not one of the original children, but he's loved. At least it appears that way just as much as all the other children. You know, street friend of Sonny's, which shows you, again, Sonny's humanity. That yeah. That friend home and beg his parents to let him live with them and be his brother. Yeah. Uh, there, there really is a lot. It, no matter how brutal he is, it's weird to say he might be the most human character. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah, he might be the easy, definitely the most identifiable with. Yeah, but so there's one last scene. Uh, not one last scene, but there's one scene we have to get to because from a uh, from a technical perspective and just from an icon icon perspective the the baptism murders okay and there are two others that if we have time i want to jump into oh, absolutely. The baptism well i think the baptism murders are that's when michael officially becomes a villain yes that there was still question up until that point that's when he becomes worse than his father he he essentially not only does he take up all the evil that his father was responsible for but at the same time, he takes up the new evil, the new world. He takes up drugs. He takes up all the other things. He, you know, he gets out of a lot of the businesses so he doesn't have to directly use drugs. But he goes into corporations and he goes into hotels and casinos. And they're still going to be peripheral association. He basically just lets other people do it and makes money off of them to fund his corporations and other ventures. Yes. And in terms of how the scenes are sort of uh, how the murders are edited together, yeah, overlaid as the as the ceremony goes on, the baptism. Because he's sort of being baptized, too, as he baptizes the child. I, it's not a direct comparison, but 
am I wrong for seeing some similarity between it and um, anyone who hasn't seen Game of Thrones? Just go with this for a second. the The trial of uh, the trial of Cersei. Oh well, you know what? Yeah, yeah no, in, in in a way, yeah, quite similar. And 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 you see that sequence. I would gather in not just mafia movies, but in wherever you're. Yeah, you're trying to show a. I, I don't know if it was the first to inspire it, but I bet you it certainly popularized that sort of final reckoning scene where either the villain, because with Michael it was a villain, but I would think that they use it with you know good characters too, where. The plans finally come together and everything just and I suppose in a good guy version they capture the bad guys. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if there's a good way or I don't know if there's a way to make a scene where a good guy murders all his all their enemies. Well that they wouldn't come on. You're, you're being so judgmental. They wouldn't call it murder. They'd say bring them to justice. <laughs> the only way you could get away with that is in like you know. The only way you could get away with that is in like a D- D- Django Unchained. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tarantino, where nobody's really a good guy. <laughs> Just everybody gets it at the end of the movie. Yeah, you're right. There probably is no, but yeah, no that I, that's a definite realistic comparison. That that's sort of along the same lines. It's you know it's the it's the bad guy getting the revenge and taking out everybody that opposed them. Yeah, and not even just thematically, but even in how the scene was composed. It's yeah. just they were showing her face, the close up. Yeah, and the close up of her clothing, and just it was very tightly shot. And I mean, I, I don't want to get too into that because uh, we're trying to stay on the Godfather, but that that, well, that, that scene, movie, even when you think about it, the, those books, it's it's kind of like the the main themes we were talking about in this. Those are the, it's the story of families. Yeah. Essentially, Godfather might have, in some ways, maybe he read about you know ancient, not even ancient, but you know older Italian history when the king was still in charge, or the Roman Empire. Yeah. It's it, that maybe that's why it stands out as such a classic is because it takes some of the elements of the most classic stories, turns some on their head, like you said with the hero's journey. But it does essentially uh, yeah. ring as one of the classics. It you know, makes us feel some of the same things. Yeah, and even if I don't think the movie quite lived up to what I expected yeah. to hype, the the journey of Michael Corleone is incredible. And even if I don't think it's – even if I think it's been done better in other movies later – that, that have probably been inspired by this. It, it there's no doubt it's done breathtakingly well here. Uh, so we only have a few minutes left, but you had a couple scenes you wanted to get to. So let's touch on those really quickly. Sure. Um, well, the two that I think, and they're very minor scenes, but they've kind of had staying power as far as they're still in the lexicon. People still quote them. And they're about a character, I think, who is highly underrated, who I think is kind of awesome, and that is Fat Clemenza. (laughs) (laughs) Going to be be totally honest, I am drawing a stupid blank right now. Uh, He is, uh, he was played by, I believe, Richard Castellano, Peter Clemenza. He's the fat underboss, not the other guy. Right, okay. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I knew exactly who you meant after I thought about it. Yeah. Well, no, and he's forgettable. 
I mean, he's not, he doesn't stand out as one of those, he's not a loud character like Sonny. He's not, you know, he doesn't have any very memorable ticks like some people do. Um, he's not, you know, he's not, another one of the great character actors is, uh, the guy who played, uh, Frankie Pentangeline, Frankie Five Angels, who, uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> Clemenza, two of the great understated scenes that he does that I that I think are that not only they're necessary, but they're just really memorable. And they once again show you the revenge theme and they show you that if justice, you know, I don't know how you want to define it as justice, but in some ways it is justice does get rendered even past the death of some people. And so, for instance, um, one of the scenes is the scene where they're driving with Polly, the guy who had betrayed, who was supposed to be the driver, instead Fredo replaced him, and he had betrayed the family to set up the hit on Don Corleone. So Polly comes back, you know, from quote unquote being sick, and Clemenza has him drive around and then says, I have to go to the bathroom, could you pull over? <laughs> and then Polly's sick. Huh? From yeah, being, being sick. sick. And yeah, and then Clemenza goes out to go to the bathroom, and while he's going to the bathroom and Paulie's, you know, not paying attention, the other guy in the car shoots Paulie in the back of the head. <laughs> and then Clemenza comes back over, and he says, leave the gun, take the cannoli. <laughs> <laughs> it, no, it it is a great scene. Honestly, when I saw it in the list of things you wanted to talk about, I thought, well, that's a little odd, but sure. But thinking on it, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's a great scene. And it, well, and it, what it, what's interesting about it is that it it shows because you saw Clemenza mention it a bunch of times with Michael to drop the gun, always drop the gun. It's a, a kind of a sign of his criminal professionalism that he believes he makes untraceable perfect guns. So you never want to take it with you and chance getting caught with it. You just leave it at the scene. They'll never find its way back. I've shaved off all the numbers. I've ground it down. No one's going to know who this is from. So it's that. And it kind of, uh, uh, and another interesting thing is that uh, Castellano, the actor, he made up the second part. Originally in the script, it was, according to some of these media sources, it was leave the gun. He added take the cannoli. And what I think that that, makes it really great is because it adds to that overriding family theme within the movie that, you know, there's our natural aversion to crime where he's like, leave the gun. But then there's the inclination that he has to remember to get what his wife asked him to get at the store. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, it, 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 it's true. It's true. Um, and then uh. the others, yeah, the other scene with Clemenza that I think is great is one of the final scenes in the movie. And that's, again, and if you notice, taking out Polly is basically the Don's justice. Polly got what he deserved, and then later on, you know, so you won't hear, for, see for, hear from him anymore when someone asks, because that's what you get for going against the Don. So later on, he does the same thing, except this time it's for Michael. And that's when uh, Carlo, the one who beat Connie, her husband, and then later on betrayed Sonny, set him up to get killed. Clemenza, yeah. t- Clemenza takes him out. <laughs> and it's just the greatest because it's so short and Clemenza's just got this nice look on his face when Carlo gets in the car and he's like, he's like, hi. And he looks at him and he goes, hello, Carlo. And then he just garrets him <laughs> in the front seat. It, it is a good, it is a good moment. <laughs> yeah, not very long. And like I said, they're not the most standout scenes, but it shows you it's just the constant that no matter what, you're not going to escape. If you betray this family sooner or later, and it just happens to be Clemenza most of the time. 
Yeah. <laughs> it it really is. Uh, again, I I thought it was a weird line to put on, to put on the list, but thinking on a, sort of the discussion, it makes perfect sense. It's well within the themes of the movie. Um. So. Uh, do you have any other scenes you want to cover with our last few minutes? Sure. Um, yeah. There. Oh, you know. I mean, we could go forever. Um, let me see uh, if I can yeah. think. Of, yeah, I think of one or one or two we can knock out real quick. Uh, well, you know, everybody. I'm sure. You know, ultimately quotable, strictly business. That scene. Yes. Yeah. Talks yeah. about killing everybody. When, basically, when you really see the good guy get down to the level of a villain, when he starts to think about what would I do. If I, you know, if we're going to take out and he starts to, not only does he say, you know, I'd kill the, the dirty police cop, but that we have friends that run the newspapers that can make that look good. <laughs> it, it really is like the full transformation just sort of taking place. Are you still there or did I lose you? No, I'm, I'm here. Okay. I just wanted yeah. to make sure. Yeah, yeah, you can see at the beginning, too, that Michael is so opposed to his family's business that he loves his father. He loves all of them, but he's disappointed them by not going into the business. But then realizes, you know, once his father is immobilized, once Sonny is proving to be a less than reliable Don, he decides, well, I guess I have to give up my life and I have to, you know, murder some people. To save everybody else. Yeah, it's a uh, yeah. It, it helps sort of complete that journey in a weird way. He does it for good reasons. He becomes he a villain for good reasons. He does, and I think that's which what is makes him, yeah the duality of it all. And that's what makes him a compelling character. He it, even if you. Th- go with the argument that he's a full villain and I would probably sympathize with that argument if not outright agree with it. It makes sense. Yeah. And it's hard to do. And, and unfortunately, a lot of movies don't pull that off. A believable transformation. No. Okay, so we are almost out of time, but I want to give you a chance. Uh, I, I know you have things to promote. so <laughs> uh, Yes, uh, people can find out about I have uh, two books out. Uh, the first is uh, Two Princes and a King, A Concise Review of Three Assassinations. It's a uh, book on uh, the his, uh, historical aspects with evidence on the assassinations of uh, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and um, Robert F. Kennedy. And then my latest book is Human Time Bomb, The Violence Within Our Nature, and that's an inspection of basically the history of violence in humanity, how we deal with it, how we're coping with it now, the changes technology has made, and strategies that uh, we can use to try to slow it down. Um, both are available on my website, tpaak.com, T-P-A-A-K.com. Uh, I also do uh, historical research and research into intelligence and human behavior. There's lots of articles there. You can check out a blog. So I'd appreciate it if you have a look. You can check out the book. It's available on Amazon and all fine bookstores. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading through it now. Um, it's really interesting. I highly recommend it. Um, I like it so much. Yes. Uh, so with that, um, we will be back next week. Um, I don't know what we'll be talking about in the news, but for our movie of the week, we will most likely be talking about Arrival. Uh, thanks for listening. See you next time.
In a world where everything is rebooted and regurgitated, one man stands alone. Humans, their nature demands competition. The rising tide of aggression shaping the world around us. Natural fear and disgust can overcome the ability to reason. Coping skills are left wanting. Carmine Savastano, human time bomb, the violence within our nature, poses significant questions and considers the evidence that violence shapes the past and present. Human time bomb, the violence within our nature. Order your digital and print copies now on Amazon.com. For more information, visit tpaak.com. Carmine Savastano, Human Time Bomb. What are the dynamics of a crowd? How do you move a mob? How do you excite them? How do you make them feel as one with you? How? Join them first. Join them? Yes. When you speak to them, speak to them as if you were a member of the mob. Speak to them in their language, on their level. Make their hate your hate. If they are poor, talk to them of poverty. If they are afraid, talk to them of their fears. If they are angry, give them objects for their anger. But most of all, the thing that is most of the essence is that you make this mob an extension of yourself. What are the dynamics of a crowd? How do you move a mob? How do you excite them? How do you make them feel as one with you? Join them first. Join them? Yes. When you speak to them, speak to them as if you were a member of the mob. Speak to them in their language, on their level. Make their hate your hate. If they are poor, talk to them of poverty. If they are afraid, talk to them of their fears. If they are angry, give them objects for their anger. But most of all, the thing that is most of the essence is that you make this mob an extension of yourself. Carmine Savastano, Human Time Bomb, The Violence Within Our Nature, poses significant questions and considers the evidence that violence shapes the past and present. Author and professor David T. Beato calls it an impressive tour de force. Savastano shows a mastery of relevant work in biology, anthropology, and intelligence. Each chapter will challenge readers to rethink old assumptions. Doctor of Psychology R. Blackstock notes, It is a long, hard look into the potency of our collective shadow that is extremely relevant in today's socio-political climate. Historian and author Larry Hancock declares, This work is a slap on the back of the head, a wake-up call, and a serious reality check as to the true human condition. Order your digital and print copies now on Amazon.com. For more information, visit tpaak.com. What would I do? Revelation through conversation. In a radio show slash podcast. You want the good news? Listen to the Ocelli Effect. Chuck Ocelli is the most underrated voice in all media. News, education, and entertainment. The Daily Bread from Ocelli.com. Go there. Save yourself from ignorance. Ocelli.com. Revelation through conversation. Ocelli.com. Jesus.
WallStreetWindow.com Gold, silver, the stock market. WallStreetWindow.com Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. WallStreetWindow.com Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State, understood these trends professionally for many years, and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge. WallStreetWindow.com Go there now. Go there now. Go there now. Go there now.